Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Turning Water to Wine, God's Excess and Extravagance. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 20th, 2013. In Scripture, celebrations loom large as a way to describe how God relates to his people. In the Old Testament reading this week, Isaiah compares Israel's future to a wedding. We read, As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And the psalmist for this week describes a feast of abundance for man and beast, both high and low. So too in the Gospels. Jesus compares God's kingdom to a king who prepared a banquet for his son, only to have people make feeble excuses about why they couldn't come. The parable of the ten bridesmaids urges us to remain vigilant, like we do at life-changing events like weddings. Life in God's kingdom requires wedding etiquette, says Jesus. He says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, John describes the consummation of human history as a great wedding party. In his gospel, John says that Jesus did many miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. He also says that he does not include most of those miracles in his gospels. The first sign was at a wedding at Cana in Galilee, about nine miles northwest of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. To the embarrassment of the host, the wedding wine ran dry. With his mother Mary and his disciples present, Jesus filled six stone pots used by Jews for ritual washings with water, and then turned the water into wine. Empty pots used for ritual purity overflowed with wine for profane celebration. The miracle was one of quantity and quality. Each pot held 20 to 30 gallons, so the result was 150 gallons of wine, far beyond what the revelers could drink, and reminiscent of the extra food left over after the feeding of the 5,000. There's an inverse ratio here between the trivial problem of running out of wine at a wedding and the bizarre abundance of the solution. And whereas most hosts serve the best wine first when people will appreciate the quality, and cheaper wine later when no one can taste the difference, Jesus reversed this pattern by saving the best for last. The God that Jesus revealed isn't a stern and stingy God. He's a God of lavish liberality, generosity, and extravagance. He's like a manager who pays a worker a full day's wages for one hour of work 
He's the God who asks Jonah if he's angry because he's generous to the pagan Ninevites. He's a father who welcomes home a wayward son with a ring, a robe, and a party. In turning water to wine, Jesus offers us excess for our emptiness. And when we, in turn, imitate the character of God, it should be with the same extravagant generosity to others. Like Mary, who anointed the feet of Jesus with expensive perfume, even though the disciples complained that it was a waste of money. The miracle at Cana reminds me of the Danish movie Babette's Feast, which won an Academy Award for Best Foreign Film in 1988. The story takes place in the late 19th century in a small fishing village on the dank and dreary Jutland coast of Denmark. Two sisters have given up their own ambitions to care for their father, an elderly pastor of a stern and tiny church. Their band of dour Christians learns the meaning of God's extravagance from a most unlikely source when a French refugee named Babette invades their small world. In a highly symbolic act, Babette, who was a famous chef in Paris, cooks the villagers a sumptuous feast. At first, the pinched villagers can't allow themselves to enjoy such extravagance. But eventually, they loosen up and learn to accept celebration, excess, and abundance. I've never witnessed a miracle, but I've wondered how I would respond if I thought I did. The vast majority of people who encounter Jesus never saw or certainly experienced a miracle. But they heard about them. What did they make of them? <coughs> John recorded the many miraculous signs of Jesus in order to encourage faith in those who heard about them, even if they had not witnessed them firsthand. He writes, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's what happened at Cana. John writes that the disciples put their faith in him. I can imagine myself falling into some crude superstition, becoming a gawker at spectacles, or disbelieving the miracle and the miracle maker, like those whom John describes in chapter 12, verse 37. The early believers were not gullible about miracle stories. They rejected many reported miracles about Jesus as spurious, like the infancy gospel of Thomas from about the year 150, in which Jesus curses a playground bully who consequently dies, then raises him to life with a spontaneous wish prayer. And he also turns clay pots into flying birds. They exercise reticence and restraint. As the prevalence of signs, wonders, and miracles waned in the decades after the apostles, 
Some people taught that the age of miracles ended with the revelation of John. Hippolytus of Rome, who died in about the year 235, said that the Spirit now spoke not through miracles, but through the canon of Scripture, the creeds, and the clergy. The miracles of Jesus provoke controversy, division, disbelief, and every once in a while, authentic faith. When some people asked Jesus to perform a miracle to prove his authority, he rebuked them for even asking. He said that if they really wanted to believe, there was more than enough evidence. A few pages after the miracle at Cana, Jesus responded brusquely to a Gentile military officer who begged Jesus to heal his sick son. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. But then he healed the boy anyhow. Even false prophets, said Jesus, could perform miracles. <coughs> Jesus was not an ancient David Blaine, some street magician doing tricks to wow curiosity seekers. Nor were his miracles merely missions of mercy or demonstrations of God's compassion for human suffering, although they were at least that. Rather, to understand his miracles meant to exercise faith in the one who had performed them. His signs, wonders, works, and healings forced a decision one way or another. He said, Believe the miracles that you may learn and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. With the first of his many miraculous signs, Jesus revealed the character of an extravagantly generous God. Contrary to our contemporary hubris and condescension toward people of the past, that's no more unbelievable today than it was back then. To be sure, it was and is very strong wine. And for further reflection, consider Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1. You did awesome things, we did not expect. And Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. For book this week, <coughs> I review a popular novel of fiction by Hunot Diaz. The title, This Is How You Lose Her, New York Riverhead Books, 2012, 213 pages. Hunot Diaz, who was born in 1968, teaches creative writing at MIT in Boston. 
His first two books took the literary world by storm. A collection of short stories called Drown, 1996, and his novel The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, 2007, won numerous awards, including the Pulitzer Prize for the latter. In 2010, Diaz was appointed to the 20-member Pulitzer Prize Board of Jurors, and then in 2012, he won a MacArthur Genius Award. But it wasn't always so. The, su the success of his work has been all about channeling his experience as an immigrant from the barrios of the Dominican Republic to the rough and tumble neighborhoods of New Jersey, and, finally, to success at a prestigious university, all the while trying to figure out just what personal identity and authenticity mean. The characters in these stories help us to experience the ambiguities, tensions, and struggles of the immigrant experience. So, for example, is Junior a typical Dominican man for cheating on his girlfriend Magda? Or maybe he's just weak, full of mistakes, but basically good. Most everyone in these stories speaks a form of street slang, Spanglish, living in between the two linguistic worlds. Work and money come hard. Yasmin, for example, works in a hospital laundry room. She says, I make an American wage, but it's a donkey job. In the story Invierno, that is, winter, he describes a first day in the United States for a young family. The father is so fearful and authoritarian that he refuses to let his two rambunctious little boys leave the cramped apartment. And so they watch out the window as other kids frolic in the snow. They learn English by watching eight hours of television every day. The harsh New Jersey winter delivers a shock to people used to the balmy island back home. In her review article of Diaz's work, Francine Prose offers this high praise. No one else had conveyed with quite such immediacy the experience of Dominican Americans inhabiting two countries and two cultures without feeling entirely at home in either. No one had made us so acutely aware of the fact that for a large segment of our population, immigration is not a singular event but a way of life involving travel to and from the homeland, journeys with the power to reawaken all the anticipation and terror of the initial departure. The author is Hunat Diaz. The collection of fiction stories, This is How You Lose Her. For film this week, I review Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide, 2012. In 2009, Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wu Dunn of the New York, Time, New York Times published their book by the same title as this movie, Half the Sky. It's about what many people are calling the most important human rights issue of the day, gender side, 
were the systematic oppression of women and girls in the developing world. If you can't read the book version, this film with the identical title was released in the fall of 2012 and is a good substitute. The movie version consists of two two-hour episodes, too long in my view, each two-hour episode focuses on three countries and a sample issue, accompanied by an American actress. For example, actress Meg Ryan accompanies Kristoff to Cambodia to examine sex trafficking. The celebrity actresses are intended to amplify the issue, says George Clooney at the beginning of the film, but I thought their presence was a distraction. The heroes and victims of the third world can speak for themselves well enough. Still, this is a first-class production about an urgent issue and well worth watching. I watched it on Netflix streaming, but I see that you can also watch it from their own Half the Sky website, www.halftheskymovement.org. And for Martin Luther King Day, we've posted his famous I Have a Dream speech, delivered August 28, 1963. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, I say to you today, my friends. And so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, <coughs> that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will no longer be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. The crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together.
Martin Luther King, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 20th, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.